0: I want to invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and as you're turning there I want to confess to you that my affections and love for you have grown and abounded the more and more I've gotten to know you. I've been here now for seven months and I felt like I, Michelle and I felt like we'd come home on day one. And I remember when we drove up to our home to move in Bob and Judy Moeller met there, met us there on December the 29th, that evening, and Bob said, Welcome home. That was good and very appropriate. He nailed it. And uh, that's how we have felt. And for that reason, and a million more, I am thrilled with the opportunity we have next Sunday. This series of messages on evangelism has tortured some of you, didn't mean to. And it has made you as nervous as a cat at a canine convention, and some of you would, <laughs> would have uh, rather uh, cross the state uh, walking across barbed wire uh, than to even consider the subject. But your faith has been delicious and will provide a great banquet for our whole community. So this coming Sunday, August the 3rd, when we commit ourselves to evangelism, is going to be a definitive moment in our church family. But more than that, it's going to be a definitive moment for the Athens-Clark County region. Mm-hmm. Because those of you who commit yourself to follow the Lord and obey the Lord in this area, and trust him, are going to make an eternal impact upon lives yes. that will never, ever end. No. In other words, what you do following that date is going to last ten thousands upon ten thousands of years going to make an impact and so I'm I'm thrilled about our opportunity next Sunday of course when we do talk about evangelism people get uptight and a bit nervous it's like the uh, fellow I heard about who wanted to rob a bank he was the nervous type and so he rehearsed his line for when he got up to the teller he kept repeating to himself don't mess with me this is a stick up and he would repeat that to himself about 10 times an hour the week before. Don't mess with me, this is a stick-up. And Don't mess with me, this is a stick-up. And he went through and repeated it so often he changed emphasis on the words. Don't mess with me, this is a stick-up. Don't mess with me, this is a stick-up. Until the day came when he was going to rob the bank. And he got to the teller and he got nervous and he got tongue-tied. And instead of saying, don't mess with me, This is a stick-up. He said, don't stick with me. This is a (laughs) mess-up. And sometimes past, some of you may have felt like when you tried to share the good news of Christ, you may have felt the same way. Well, I've got good news for you. Here in this text, Paul takes evangelism and makes it accessible to the common Christian person. And so that's why on August the 3rd, we're going to ask you to make as many commitments that you have on your insert this morning as you possibly can. Daily, I want to ask you to pray for 15 lost people. Weekly, I want to ask you to let us know how many times a week you're going to share the gospel of Christ with someone and invite them to be chained. I I don't want to impose a weekly goal on you, but if you'll... um, Bring one yourself. That would be great. Then, monthly, I want to ask you to give an hour to outreach visitation. Participating deacons, we're asking to start that in September, on September the 7th, and participating church members beginning on January the 4th. It's going to take us a while to get to where we can host uh, all the church members that will participate in that. That will give you a few months to acclimate to the information and the training that we'll give you. And then... I will participate in evangelism training on Sunday, August the 10th, from 3 to 6. Uh, tentatively, we've got a makeup date on August the 24th. And then we'll need you to put your name and your email address, your phone number, and then let us know if you've participated in evangelism training in the past or if you have any experience in visitation. <coughs> if you'll look over that this week, we would appreciate that. I'm asking you not to turn that in today. Some of you need to, and that will be fine, and you're ready. But we're asking for a submission of these forms next Sunday. Jerry Knudsen and Barbara Krauss and Gary Casey and Sean and LaVon Giese are names you do not know. And after today, you probably will never hear of them except from my mouth. These are the sweet and dedicated Sunday school teachers and friends and pastors who shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did so at P.W. Ingvall Junior High School, Lamore High School, and also in a cinder block church uh, that was typical of mission churches on the West Coast, uh, beginning in um, sometime in the 50s. I arrived there in 1982 and heard my pastor preach, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And it dawned on me I was not a new creation in Christ. And therefore I wasn't saved. And so I repented and gave my heart and life to Christ a couple of months later. Followed the Lord in baptism four months later on my birthday in August. And Jesus has been good and sweet ever since. Words cannot tell and pen cannot write. Tongue does not have enough years to announce his praises of how good he's been to me. But those are names you know nothing of. The great Christian names that circulated in those days were not the primary influence on my life bringing me to Jesus. What I'm asking you today is to commit yourself to being like that highway patrolman Jerry Knutson, or like that Sunday school teacher who was persecuted every Sunday by her atheist husband, her anti-theist husband for teaching Sunday school, who wept when she told us of Jesus' death. (coughs) Some of you, God will want to preach the gospel like my pastor, Gary Casey. Others of you God will uh, make like Sean Giese, just a junior high and high school friend who rededicated his life and got on fire for the gospel of Christ. And today, actually, God's called him to ministry. He's minister of outreach at a church in the Bay Area of California. I want you to be like those persons. And if you are still breathing and if you know Jesus Christ, you can. This text takes evangelism and puts it where ordinary Christians can reach it. Beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse number 26 For you see your calling brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty, not many noble are called but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not "...to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh shall glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God." For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. In my speech, in my preaching, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." I am looking at Christians today who will do better than maybe what they realize now if they'll trust and obey the Lord in evangelism and not let the common hindrances hinder them from trusting and obeying Him. Well, what are some of those hindrances? Well, one happens to be modesty. Modesty is not necessarily an automatic hindrance to your witness. Now, there are some who would say, oh, I can understand people giving their lives to Christ if Coach uh, Mark Rick were to speak at an assembly or witness to someone one-on-one, uh, someone that well-known and someone that, uh, uh, that uh, popular and uh, someone with that stature, of course people would believe him and give their lives to Jesus Christ. In fact, if we could win a large number of prominent people in the area, we could fill the church up, fill up the baptistry, and bring many people to Jesus Christ. Some imagine and suppose, and Paul would say, that's not what I'm saying in verse 26. Coach Rick and other prominent Christians have done a lovely job. Don't misunderstand me. They're some of the finest in the world. And so don't interpret what I'm saying as anti-prominent person. Oh, no. Uh, on the contrary, I appreciate so much what they've done. Uh, in fact, some argue that the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are messages to the wealthy. There are many wealthy that help the gospel along and many that come to Christ in those two books of the Bible. So let's not have any prejudice against prominent wealthy people at all. Not at all. But ladies and gentlemen, there is room for the common person in the kingdom of God and in the work of God. In fact, Abraham Lincoln said, God must love common people because he made so many of them. And President Lincoln was entirely correct. And that's what Paul is saying beginning in verse 26. There is intense modesty here in what Paul has to say from verses 26 to 31. Uh, in verse 26, we find an emphatic modesty. You see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. In other words, there are not many of you who came to Christ here in Corinth who were of the intelligentsia of Corinth. There are not many of you here that were uh, military leaders. You weren't mighty. And then many of you were not noble. You were not found in palaces, in the centers of power, and in government. He uses the phrase not many three times in this text to emphasize the modesty of the Corinthian Christians. So it's an emphatic modesty. And then it's also an intentional modesty. Look at verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things and the things which are despised, God has chosen. In other words, this is intentionally designed by God. Three times Paul says God has chosen modesty for many of his people to make an impact for the gospel. So it's emphatic, it's intentional, and then it's profound. It's a profound modesty in verse number 27. God has chosen the foolish things. These are the folks that would never earn a degree. I mean, even if they were driving through Tuscaloosa with the window down, a certain university there would not throw a diploma in the back seat of their car. Amen? Uh, these are not the kind to be amongst the intelligentsia, to earn the degrees. Uh, the, they are the foolish things, but they put to shame the wise. And then God has chosen the weak things of the world, those that cannot make it out of boot camp, uh, the weak things of the world, to put to shame excuse me, the things which are mighty and the base things, the common things of the world and the things which are despised by the powerful, God has chosen and the things, watch this, that are not, not even noticed to bring to nothing the things that are. So this happens to be profound modesty. It's also antagonistic modesty. In other words, there is a war from heaven going on against our world for its human pride and its haughtiness, for its misguided values. Now, I believe if you have the opportunity for education, get all that you can as long as you can stay humble. If you have the ability to make money, do so as long as you can guard your heart from materialism and honor the Lord with it. I'm all for that, but that is oftentimes too big a temptation for many people. But what we find here in verse 27 is that God is using the modest things of the world to put to shame those that are wise and to put to shame the things which are mighty and to make nothing those things that are. In other words, heaven militates and battles arrogance and human pride and misguided values with the modest of the world. And he's doing that with the Corinthians. And then it's a Christ-centered modesty. Look at verse number 29. That no flesh should glory in His presence. That's the motive. God does not want anyone bragging as they stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. He'll not have it. And so those that are modest are called to Him. And then verse 30, of Him you are in Christ Jesus. That is credit given only to Jesus for our salvation. Then look at the progress that they had in verse number 30, that they found in Jesus Christ that they could not find any place else. He says here, Christ became for us wisdom. The ancient world was confused with 10,000 philosophies, two or three of them that were the most prominent, but still their problems and their corruption, their deterioration, discouraged leaders and others. Uh, they were very dubious about one another. And so their wisdom really was no wisdom at all. But when the Christians came along with the wisdom of Jesus Christ, there was something refreshing and something new. And he goes on to say, Christ became for his wisdom and righteousness. That is something the ancient philosophies could never achieve. The ancient systems of morals could never achieve. They didn't have any righteousness. Righteousness was new in the world when Jesus Christ came. And it was found among the modest Corinthian Christians. And then he goes on, he became sanctification. Well, that's holiness directed towards God. The Corinthians were connected with God in holiness, which none of the others could do because they did not know Christ. And then he became redemption or freedom and liberty from sin. And that is the power and the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was not found anywhere else in the ancient world until Jesus arrived and saved those who Believed, And here's the aim in verse 31, it's Christocentric, and that is that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God arranges life and ministry in churches that when they function as they are to function, as He desires and designs, the only hero and the only celebrity is Jesus Christ. That's all. When he is finished doing a work, no one is tempted to give glory to human means, human ingenuity, or human power, or human persuasion, or human wisdom. They give it all to Christ. When we do what we are to do, we give credit to him. When I taught at the seminary, I was interim pastor at a nearby church where Kelly Clarkston was a member. And we were planning some revival services over the next couple of years, and the members there knew Kelly, the first winner of the American Idol Prize. And uh, she had gone well and used her musical talents. I'm not real familiar with Kelly's music, so I can't evaluate it one way or the other um, and, and all. But uh, she was a member of this particular church. And my family and I were real good friends with their best friend. And I toyed with the idea of using connections in this church and using uh, the connection with this best friend of hers to try to get her to come sing at one of these revival services. And I never pulled the trigger on that because I couldn't get a piece about doing it. I I, I imagined what would happen, and I knew what would happen. We would draw a very large crowd. And uh, we would advertise it real well, and we would pack out the place, probably several times over, with folks coming to hear Kelly. And I can imagine she would probably sing some of the songs she did when she was a member there and uh, give some kind of at least a superficial encouragement for Christ, maybe deeper, I don't know. But I worried about that. I really did. Because the presence of that kind of celebrity in a place like that could be so overpowering that it would be hard to get human hearts turned upward to Jesus Christ to give Him glory. And so I backed off of it. Well, let's imagine that we were able to get a celebrity Katie Perry, for example, to put on some clothes and join the music ministry here, okay? <laughs> <clears throat> and start singing gospel music. And let's say that her first Sunday here, we had her sing a solo. And let's say we announced it in a month. Kelly, uh, Katie will be here and she'll sing a solo. Can you imagine what would happen and the buzz that would be created around the metropolitan area here. We'd have folks driving from all over just to see the curiosity is what we would have. Somebody would create an internet site called a Katie Watch and look for all over Athens. And why is it that many people would come? Now, don't misunderstand me celebrities are people too. They need the gospel of Christ. In fact, we've had a deacon recently witness to a celebrity and just treat him like a human being who needs Jesus. So I'm all for that. God saved Zacchaeus. God got the gospel to kings and queens in the book of Acts. I'm all for that. Don't misunderstand me. I do not want to in, in, uh, provoke uh, anti-wealthy, anti-prominent person prejudice. Not that at all. But ladies and gentlemen, Our culture slobbers all over itself because of celebrities. And I've got news for you, one greater than a celebrity is here already. And Jesus Christ alone is worthy of glory. So we've got to be very careful how we put things together. So I've got to say to you, it may very well be that your modesty is an advantage for you. Because God will not share His power or His glory with anyone else. And if just a humble, simple, common, ordinary Christian person lifts up Jesus and shares the good news, He has the attention of heaven and promised power to save the lost when you witness. And so your modesty is not automatically a hindrance unless you let it be. Your modesty may actually be a great big advantage. Well, there's a second potential hindrance that really does not have to be a hindrance, and that is simplicity. Mental or intellectual or academic simplicity. You may say, well, I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. What if they ask me a question I cannot answer? I'll tell you, most of the time they don't ask any questions. Most of the time they don't. So that's probably not something you need to worry too much about, but if you get a question, say, well, let me get back with you. It's as simple as that. Most people respect that. Some people may protest and say, well, listen, I I am so simple in my thinking, I couldn't persuade a sweltering child to eat ice cream in July. That's how simple I am. I'm just not capable of doing that. I've got good news for you. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. There is undeniable simplicity in Paul's approach to the Corinthians as he rehearses what took place in Acts 18 when he came to the Corinthians. There's a simple method in verse 1, I came to you, I declared the testimony of God. It was as simple as that. It really was. I came, I declared. May I say to you, evangelism is really not that complicated. It really isn't it is more difficult to deposit a check at the bank than it is to share the gospel. I came, I declared. That's a simple method. Then, um, there's simple speech. Verse 1, the testimony of God, the story of Jesus and His love. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would say, I believe what the Bible says about human sin. Can I get you to lift your hand? Okay. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. Can you? I believe anybody who repents and places faith in Christ, God will save. What you just did is that you essentially agreed with the Apostle Paul. Once in a while, we'll have to unpack some things. Once in a while, we'll have to elaborate. But when you share that message, it is joined with the power of heaven. In fact, our speech is not joined with the power of heaven until we share that message. And that's why Paul determined in this great center of the world to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So there's a simple method, there's simple speech, and and the simple content. A a number of years ago, I um, was participating in the Evangelism Response Center of the North American Mission Board. It's a call line where people from across the nation call asking, what must I do to be saved? They may find the number on an evangelistic track. They may find it on a Southern Baptist magazine. It's a Southern Baptist call line, by the way. Uh, sometimes, um, some of the uh, biblically faithful TV preachers will use that number, and uh, there's one in particular that if he preaches, uh, even one of his classic uh, sermons from the 70s, the, the line lights up and just go, goes crazy, more so than any other preacher uh, current or before. But I was on the phone. I'd logged in, and I remember Lisa called me, and after that, Vicki did, and both of them received Jesus as Savior. And I was stunned. Lisa said, I'm ready to get right with God. That was the first thing out of her mouth when I said, how may I help you? I'm ready to get right with God. And then Vicki said, "I'm, I'm tired of trusting my own works. I'm ready to trust Jesus only. Can you help me? I said to myself, well, honey, you just threw me in a briar patch. Let's talk. But I went through and shared the gospel with them and they both repented and believed. And it dawned on me, Mills, are you sure that was enough? All have sinned, the wages of sin is death, Christ died for our sins, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it dawned on me that I'd led those two ladies to Christ at their uh, initiative and had led all the people I'd led to Jesus Christ in personal evangelism through the years with the same message I learned right before my senior year in high school. I've had nearly every evangelism training strategy that has been produced in the English language. I have been reading all the ones back going at least until 1919. And actually, I've worked recently on something that came about in about 1898 in evangelism training. My library is filled with books. But on that day, and nearly every time I've led someone to Christ since then, what I have used is about what I learned the summer before my senior year in high school. Why? Why? Because the gospel, not my intelligence, is the power of God unto salvation. So your simplicity is not a hindrance. it may very well be your advantage. It reminds me of Carl Bart, probably the greatest theological mind of the 20th century. He was at the University of Chicago Divinity School. He was taking questions from students and providing answers, and one student said, "Dr. Bart." What is the greatest theological insight you have ever had? And eyewitnesses replied, that Bart replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Listen to me. When it comes to winning people to Christ your simplicity is not necessarily a hindrance. It may be the biggest advantage in the world because you share about human sin, about the Savior and God's own solution, and you stay out of the way without trying to impress anyone with your intellect. And when you focus on Jesus like that, the Father smiles and the Holy Spirit works. And so your modesty does not have to be a a hindrance your simplicity does not so for that reason let's be determined like the apostle Paul I've determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified but there's a third item that is not necessarily a hindrance and that is timidity you may say you don't know how badly you're torturing me with this subject you might as well ask me to swallow shattered glass I am intimidated well, you're in good company. Paul went to Corinth. All you have to do is go to Athens. That was more impressive when I told Michelle that the first time. But that's okay. I used to be, that's okay. I used to be that slow too. Anyway, um, Corinth. Corinth was a center of financial and commercial activity. The plutocrats resided in Corinth. It had the Wall Street of the day. It was powerful financially. It it, it had replaced Athens as the education center of the ancient world. Doesn't appear it's going to happen in the 21st century, of course, but uh, that is what happened in Corinth. It did replace Athens as a philosophical center and education center by the time Paul arrived there. It was also a place that was intimidating morally. In fact, the ancients used to criticize one another by saying, you have become Corinthianized. About the only thing new that the Corinthians knew of when it came to morals were, were new ways of becoming debauched and degraded. That's about all. This was an intimidating place. And did you read what Paul said about his entrance then into Corinth? Don't view the apostle as a tiger. View him more as a lamb. Don't view him as a powerhouse of wisdom. View him as someone who struggled. Let's be careful of elevating him too high he gets real honest about verse about himself and his emotional condition in verse, um, verse three. He said, I was with you in what? Weakness. And in what? Fear. And in yeah, much trembling. Mega trembling, the text reads. Paul was an emotional basket case. There was intense timidity in uh, verse 3. The Hebrews would repeat something three times, sometimes using different words, sometimes the same, when they were trying to emphasize something, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's a wreck here in Corinth. Weakness, fear, and in much trembling. And then this is detrimental in verse number 4. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. In other words, his preaching and speech were not appropriate for the culture. The Corinthians did not appreciate weakness. The Corinthians did not appreciate speech that was simple and unpersuasive. That's not what they appreciated. They had traveling itinerant speakers who would spouse their sophistry and their wisdom, and their thinking, and thought, and their concepts, and they take up an offering. Long before evangelists ever arrived on the scene. And Corinth was somewhat burned out on them, and so the only ones that got attention in that day, in Paul's day, happened to be those who were the very best of speakers. And so Paul comes here, and he doesn't have persuasive ability or power in his words. He's countercultural by default in that sense. But then it's a neutralized timidity because in verse 4, he said, I didn't have speech or preaching with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Beloved, listen. His weakness and his fear and trembling and his awkwardness and his intimidation with evangelism did not exclude him from the power of the Holy Spirit, nor does it exclude you. In fact, you're the perfect candidate for the power of the Spirit under these conditions. Then it was a productive timidity because in verse number five, he said that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And the Corinthians then came to Christ, not trusting men or their persuasion or their wisdom, but trusting solely in the power of God. So Paul's emotions here in Corinth were not like a placid, uh, a placid, cool, refreshing lake, but a boiling cauldron of water. It wasn't much like a sunset, but a tornado. It wasn't like a beautiful mountain vista, but molten lava that was taking place in his heart and in his soul, and yet the power of God was upon him. Your wisdom and your speech do not need to convert anyone. God does not expect that from you if you will trust him, obey him, open your mouth and invite people to the Lord, he will take care of the rest. He is the one who raises the dead. The power is in the spoken gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will say to you, if you're waiting to share the gospel until you feel comfortable with it, until you can eliminate your awkwardness, you will be waiting until the day of your death. You will probably never, ever get over your nervousness and awkwardness. In fact, you may not want to. That's right. As long as your nervousness and awkwardness do not paralyze you into silence, you may not want to get over them. Do you know why? Well, when you're nervous and awkward about doing something, tell me, what happens to your prayer life? It escalates, doesn't it? It intensifies. That's probably what happens. And so you seek the Lord and ask Him to help you. Not only that, but your nervousness and awkwardness may indicate your body's reaction to just how serious you take this. So if you're nervous and awkward, that really probably means that you're sincere. It probably means that you're taking this very seriously, and that will communicate. I will tell you, if you are serious about this and sincere, those to whom you share the gospel probably will not notice how nervous and awkward you are. They're so nervous and awkward, they don't notice that in you. But they will notice that sincerity. It it could be also that your nervousness and awkwardness happens to be some spiritual warfare. Satan hates people because when they get saved, they give glory to Jesus. He's insanely jealous of that. So he will do everything he can to erect obstacles between you and a lost world in sharing the gospel. And so it, it comes as no surprise to me that He will interfere and persecute you into anxiety to where you share nothing. It makes perfectly good sense to me. And so what I want to say to you is, as long as it will not paralyze you into silence and you'll open your mouth, trust the Lord, and obey Him in this matter, then, beloved, then God will use you. And so what I want to say to you is, it is not important that you find your zone in evangelism, if I can put it that way. It is not important that you grow comfortable with it. That's totally irrelevant. You probably will never be comfortable. It's not important that you find the perfect opportunity. Comfort and perfect opportunities and finding your zone and your comfort level are thoroughly irrelevant. God doesn't want any of these. What God wants is obedience. And if you'll trust and obey him, you will probably do far better than you now imagine. Please listen to what I'm saying. Please. I've watched this for more than three decades. I've been training people to do this for more than three decades. I've got to tell you this. Most people who simply trust and obey the Lord, almost all of them, and I can't think of an exception yet, just in case there is one, let me qualify. Almost all of the people I know who have trusted and obeyed the Lord come back rejoicing, surprised about how receptive lost people were, and surprised about how much the Holy Spirit used them. You're probably going to do far better than you ever realized. So you say you're modest. You say you're simple. You say you're timid. God wants you. In fact, God has chosen you to confound the wise and the mighty and the noble. This does not depend upon your sophistication, your intelligence, or your courage. It depends on Jesus, who will transfer to you for the mere price of repentance and faith, who will transfer to you all of his loveliness, that you can walk in Him and appear before God His Father, the judge of all the earth, with as much loveliness as He now enjoys, simply by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So please set aside. Please set aside any love for sophistication. Set aside. Please set aside any pride of intelligence. Please set aside. Please set aside any lust for courage, where it's not necessary. Instead, put on Jesus Christ and heaven will transfer his loveliness to you today because his work at the cross and in the resurrection is sufficient and enough to save you and make you right with God even right now, even right now. Father, would you do that today? And by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring friends to Jesus and let them know him. Help them to rip from their heart their idols all the hindrances that keep them from repentance and faith and help them to rush quickly to the the Savior. We pray they'll do that now. Lord, for the rest of us that know Him, help us to trust and obey the Lord in this matter. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And when we sing, what we do here at Beach Haven Baptist Church is that we ask you to stand and we ask you to come meet a staff member here at the front and tell that staff member your need. And we're going to ask you to do that now, would you? As we start singing in just a moment, we want you to come. There's no magic to walk in this aisle. It's just a practical way to get the spiritual help right now that you need. And we want you to come. I want to ask you to quickly stand with me. I'm going to finish my prayer and we're going to ask you to come. Father in heaven, how we bless your name and thank you praise you for hearing us. And I pray for friends today that they would place faith in Jesus and trust him enough to go public with that faith. Would you do that now? In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen.
1: There is a
0: Redeemer. That great! I've been singing that for more than 30 years. It's one of the first Christian songs I've ever heard, and the best rendition I've ever heard was done today. What a marvelous thing! Thank you, music and worship ministry. Let me ask you to please be seated. Let me uh, tell you a few things about our ministry opportunities. First of all, uh, you'll be glad to know and be thrilled uh, that uh, today uh, one of our members, who's been in Southeast Asia for a couple of years now, has returned home, Sydney King. Sydney, would you uh, stand and let folks see you? Good. Great. Right. You, um, you have been supporting Sydney through the cooperative program and other means, and she has served as an International Mission Board missionary, what we call representative today in Southeast Asia. And Sydney, we pray for you and glad that you're home uh, today. Now, you're home permanently, right? Your term is finished? Okay. Good. Well, it's good to have her, and of course, her whole family. Uh, whole family here with that great missions legacy to the whole family. Also, uh, I want to ask real quickly, uh, those that are present today of the Minister of Music Search Committee, would you please stand for just a moment? Could you do that? I didn't prepare them for this, but um, and I would say I didn't mean to put them on the spot, but that's not true. Uh, in any case, good, good. Is there anyone I'm missing? Dave Tolbert is wrestling children in extended session, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> and um, one of his favorite things to do but any case uh, Dave is the chairman and you see these that are here they need your prayers their words